Hi everyone and welcome back to Conversations with Mista. I am here today with Dr. Taylor, the executive founder of Wonder Tree and the co-author of The Why Behind Our Classroom Behaviors and Creating Sensory Smart Classrooms. Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for taking the time to be here today. Hi, it's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, I'm really passionate about just driving into everything that you do. I remember coming across your Instagram. This was some months ago. Um, I follow one of my good friends, Robert Aswood, who's all about reforming the education system. And I saw that he was following you guys. And just reading through your posts, I was so intrigued because something that I'm personally really passionate about is education reform and making education more interactive and more personal. And I think students are just so unique in their own ways that conforming them to conventional ways of learning isn't always conducive towards their growth. And um, just seeing so many posts on your Instagram about understanding the why behind tantrums, going steps deeper, looking at neurodivergence and how that plays into the classroom was something that I really, really wanted to get into today. I know we chatted a couple weeks ago about your work and what that looks like, but walk me through where your passion for all of this first began. Yeah, so I am a clinical psychologist and um, I've had the opportunity to work with lots of wonderful, amazing people. And I've, it, you know, really um, learned a lot about infant and early childhood mental health through my work. Um, I come from, you know, in my family, there's a long history of um, uh, trauma and um, substance abuse and neglect. And so one of the things that was really important to me growing up was um, being able to see a change or to develop a change in that cycle that you see sort of inter, uh, multi-generational uh, systemic trauma. And so um, feeling empowered to create a change for people. And so that really um, allowed me to feel passionate about working with children and um, diving. I've had the opportunity to dive pretty deeply into that early childhood and infant mental health research. And then when I was working at the Center for Connection in Pasadena, I met um, my colleague, Dr. Jamie Chavez, who is an occupational therapist. And she and I have worked with uh, in uh, many schools and we've seen how passionate teachers are and how compassionate they are and how dedicated they are and how much they want to support their students and sometimes it's really hard to know how to do that I think traditional teachers are taught in a very behavioral manner in terms of how to manage the classrooms and even though they're well-meaning they don't know what else to do if the behavioral approaches aren't working and so often those approaches are punitive. Um, you know, they can be shaming or blaming. Mm -hmm. And as you can see, it actually makes the behaviors worse. And so what, what we did was take all of the amazing research from the early childhood and the infant mental health field and applied it to the educational setting. Which is wonderful because I remember when we were chatting, you walked me through a few different techniques and I wanted to dive deeper on them today. One of them being co-regulation. So what is co-regulation? Right. So in the infant and early childhood research, there's there's so many wonderful um, researchers and providers like Mary Ainsworth and John Bowlby and Tronic um, who've 
done a, a lot of research on secure attachment and um, different ways to build secure relationships within the family unit. So this idea of co-regulation is a really important and foundational idea. Um, and so the idea is different from self-regulation where the idea is that self-regulation, like you need to learn how to regulate yourself. You need to calm down, you, you know, and especially with young children, it's like they need to learn how to put themselves to sleep or they need to learn how to take deep breaths and calm down. The idea with co-regulation is that it's it's bi-directional. So it's not just one person needs to do it, but regulation is um, done together with someone else. Mm. So it's know how um, emotions or emotional states can feel contagious. Um, so if you are flying in an airplane and there's turbulence and the people around you start getting stressed out, that can rub off on you and start getting, you can start getting stressed out as well. Um, or just like when you see someone yawn and then you yawn as well. So because in part, um, something in the brain called mirror neurons, oftentimes when we see someone experiencing something, it it can feel like we're experiencing it too, even though we might not be. And so, especially if you're highly empathetic and compassionate, like so many of te the teachers are, and so many of those of us in helping professions, that emotions can be really contagious. So if we see our students feeling really stressed, that can stress out us out. If we, as a teacher or a professional, feel really stressed going into the day, then that can rub off on our students. And so co-regulation is being regulated together. Um, and the first step with that as us being adults in the situation is we need to tune in with ourselves and notice, am I in a regulated state? Am I in a stressed out state? How is this going to impact my interactions with my students? Mm -hmm. I. I think the idea of implementing that into a classroom is beautiful because it's so, again, it's so personalized and I didn't see that growing up, right, in, in the environments I was in. So the fact, and I still don't think society sees it enough, so the fact that you're creating this this modality I think is wonderful. I'm, I'm still curious what an example more specifically of co-regulation would look like because I know you described the mirror neurons, you know, the whole yawning, contagious uh phenomenon but at the same time it's like now when we're trying to you know regulate the nervous system and kind of uh calm down the nervous system response what would be like a very simple technique that maybe people at home can do with their parents or their teacher or their friends yeah so you know some of the other research um, that that we looked at talks a lot about you know, and especially when you think about in the classroom, it's like, that's great if you're one-on-one -on -one with a child, but when you've got a classroom full of 20 some odd students, how am I supposed to implement these techniques? And the idea is, and the research shows that it's actually not quantity. It's not the amount of time that's put in, but it's quality. So mm. it's, even if you just have like two seconds, or if, if you've got like 30 seconds to be with a student, um, even if it's just like, um, you know, a tap on the shoulder, like mm. it could be verbal, it could be nonverbal. Wow. Um, and so it's, it's the idea that you're focusing on the state of your regulation and then that of the students. And so it may be something that you even comment about for yourself, like, oh, my heart's beating really fast. Mm. I'm, 
get up and, and stretch or I'm going to get up and touch my toes. And that's going to help me feel a little bit better before diving into this math worksheet. Um, or um, I'm going to give myself a big squeezy hug. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and that's where the sensory motor pieces tie in, which my colleague, Dr. Chavez, and I were able to integrate the different um, <clears throat> disciplines with me being mental health and her being occupational therapy. She was able to really tie in some of the sensory motor strategies. So sometimes they're nonverbal, you know, sometimes kids get flooded with language mm -hmm. and they get something that's more movement-based or physical and it's dynamic so you might notice that too much physical activity is overstimulating and mm -hmm. so maybe you just dim the lights and whisper <laughs> um, and so the yeah. it's sort of it's dynamic and it changes in the moment but there's lots of opportunities for experimenting and see seeing what works and what doesn't work yeah i and i almost want to backtrack because I, I wish I had started off with this question too of just on a very basic overarching level defining neurodivergence, right? Because I, I, I think we hear this word a lot and I think the world is becoming more and more exposed to self-development books and the neurobiology behind so-and-so, right? Like we're attacking neuro as almost like a, a precursor to all these different industries. Like we have neuroeconomics, we have neuropsychology. So when we talk about neurodivergence, I think in the simplest of terms, how can we define that to the general public? Sure. So, and in, in just to clarify, you know, these strategies that we talk about work for everyone, whether you're experiencing the world through a neurodivergent lens or neurotypical lens, it, it, because it's based on the brain and the nervous system and the, you know, the sort of underlying regulation that we all experience. Um, neurodivergent children and adults often um, experience things on a, a higher level and so they need more support um, and so you know for example so actually the term neurodiversity was coined by a sociologist back in the early 90s um, who is autistic and um, you know she really felt like this the the tide of the medical field and the psychological field was too deficits based. Um, and so this idea of neurodiversity was formed to focus on the strengths and the positives of being neurodivergent and how actually amazing that is and how much it brings to the world to have these different ways of experiencing things. Sure. From different and so neurodiversity is, is sort of the overarching term for experiencing the world in different ways. Um, so oftentimes being autistic, having ADHD, learning disabilities, even sometimes giftedness um, or twice exceptional mm -hmm. students um, can be neurodivergent as well. So I understand that Wonder Tree really, your role is now going into the school systems and offering, you know, these techniques um, as programs that are offered to the students at the public schools. Is that right? We do. Yeah. So we provide workshops and trainings and consultations um, for educators and providers. And we also work with families that have neurodivergent children um, that need support with advocating. Um, we can help clarify diagnosis and treatment plans and then advocate supports within the communities that they're in. Um, and we, you know, 
the systems that a lot of the times the educational systems that we work within are still working from a very deficits based or um, you know not not neurodiversity affirming much more sort of behavioral mm-hmm. uh, approaches and so um, we are going in and trying to adjust that and support students through more of a regulation based approach. Mm-hmm. How do you think things would be different if just the modalities of accepting neurodivergent, you know, teachings were commonplace in the school system? Because you're working with so many youngsters and they're in that place where they're still in like the the critical period, right? Like their their neural pathways are so flexible that I'm sure they're able to take in and receive and then start to subconsciously implement these techniques on their own over time. Um, What do you notice about the power of just offering these teachings at the age of the students that they're at right now? Yeah, you know, I think it's really powerful to have other ways of looking at things. You know, I think we we are taught a certain way and we think that's the way it's supposed to be um and don't get me wrong for some students maybe the more traditional behavioral approaches do work um however what what i've seen is that there's so much more connection there's so much more enjoyment there's so much more love of learning um when the students and the teachers feel that they're relationally connected and safe. And from what we know about the brain, we need to feel safe first before we're able to access the the learning parts of our brain that help us actually engage and learn and problem solve and make decisions. And so if we have that foundation of safety between the teacher and the student, everything will be easier. (laughs) Things will be easier behaviorally. Um, there will be less stress, students and teachers will get along better, <laughs> and then learning will come with that as well. Yeah, it's it's so interesting that you say that because I know my therapist talked to me about the Maslow's hierarchy, and it's funny because it's something that I studied back when I was in school, but I never really thought about it so much until I was in the session with her. And she was talking about how, as humans, we oftentimes can forget the actual hierarchy and sometimes we skip around it and so you know your basic primal needs have to be met then you have to feel mentally safe and then i think as humans we're wired at least in today's society to be at this this place of growth right so we're skipping all these other places and we're trying to get to almost at top of that pyramid which is ascension or growth but there's so much there's so many more layers beneath that that if we bypass we're just going to be emotionally, I feel like, transgressing and going backwards. So I I think it's really important that you mention that. And unfortunately, I don't think that that safety is something that I see, you know, happening or being cultivated very commonly in a lot of school systems today, which is why I'm just so passionate about, you know, the work that you do. What have you noticed in just terms of small behavioral changes that you're, you know, able to disclose on this podcast um, in the students and in the families that you have worked with? Yeah, so, you know, for an example from my own son from a few years ago, so he's in fifth grade now, he's 11. Um, A few years ago, he was really struggling in math, 
and um, math was causing a sort of nervous system fight or flight response for him. Mm-hmm. And what ended up having happening was that he was shutting down during math class or either shutting down or mm-hmm. um, and he was he was either shutting down during math class or he was becoming distracted or disruptive to the other students. And so, you know, I talked to the teacher and we were brainstorming some ideas and what what I noticed that, you know, her the teacher's first response was, you know, what's um, what are some like rewards or consequences that we could use to motivate him. And I was like, well, <laughs> you know, we don't really use rewards and consequences. Um, we're, we sort of look at what's underlying the behavior and supporting him in that way. And, you know, I explained this idea of how math, even though, you know, it's like he's interpreting it like the numbers are going to jump out of the page and bite him. <laughs> and his brain is sending him into this fight or flight nervous system response. He's not doing it intentionally to get out of math. He's not doing it to try to be manipulative or to be distracting on purpose. He's literally having a nervous system response because of this. Um, and and what the teacher, she explained what she was doing at school. So she had created this behavior chart um, on the board, you know, where everyone could see. And if you were behaving appropriately, you got a mark under your name. And and I explained, you know, I feel like that could be very, um, like he could feel bad about that. And she's like, but it's positive. You know, they get a mark if they do something positive. We're not focusing on the negatives. And I was like, I understand that. But if you don't have any marks under your name, like, it's obvious that you're having a hard time um and so what we did is we switched it to focus on so something that we talk about in the book is is the expectation gap um and so right now the expectation gap you know the expectation was for him to complete a math page independently on his own he wasn't able to do that and so his ability to meet the expectation was way down here the gap is the the expectation was up here there's a huge gap and so that is going to cause a lot of of the dysregulation or the behaviors, the service, the surface behaviors that we're seeing, either the shutting down or the distracting. Um, and what we want to do is understand what's underneath that. So he is having a nervous system response to not knowing how to do this math. And so what we want to do is two things to close the gap. So one is lower the figure out how to accommodate so we talk about accommodating to regulate (laughs) so accommodate so lower temporarily reduce the expectation and then the other thing is how can he build skills so building his skills so that he can meet the expectation over time you can build the expectation and his skills as his skills increase so that he can meet the expectation of the situation so we started helping him at home with math helping him so there were a couple things so one was getting him extra help with math but then also looking at the thoughts he was having about math because he was having a lot of all or nothing thinking like i can't do this this means i'm dumb i'm never gonna get it i'm stupid and so that sent him into this fight or flight spiral and so we helped him with the thoughts we helped him with the math skills and then we talked to the teacher about reducing the demands he started feeling successful the fight or flight reduced and then over time we were able to increase the demands so that he was ultimately able to do the full page without melting down 
and we didn't use any behavioral rewards or consequences for that he gained skills he felt much more confident and competent around math and it was um really helpful all around (laughs) and and uh, i love that shift so much because it was all internal you were helping him you were facilitating these different activities that he could do to then feel that confidence internally rather than a lot of the external metrics that we reward students based on in the education system and so much of what you were saying reminded me of i'm not sure if you read the book the teenage brain by francis e jensen but there was a whole chapter and i resonated it with with it so deeply because it literally talks about the overactivation of the amygdala when there's an increase in cortisol that's created by the amount of stress that we're putting on today's youth, like high school, college students, which literally then leads to variety of mental illnesses, right? And so I remember going through a really dark phase when I was at that stage of my life, but not knowing what was going on. Like I hadn't read the book at that time in my life. I had teachers who at that point when we would have parent-teacher conferences, um, I remember they would tell my mom, like, yeah, I'm not sure. Like, this is just not coming in to, um, like, the extracurricular. She's not coming in to get get more help on the exams. And I remember being in a place where I was like, well, I don't even want to show up to school every day. Why would I come to the after-school places, right? And I didn't feel comfortable to tell my high school teachers that I was going through a dark phase in my life where I, you know, wasn't even able to comprehend what was what was going on in class, it was almost like there was a sense of, sense of shame to say that, right? There wasn't an acceptance-based um, system that we had created that I had grown up with that made me feel safe to express that to them um, or to my parents at that point in time. So, um, you know, for me, this is why this conversation goes much, much deeper. It's because it touches a personal place that I was at about 10 years ago in my life. And Kind of making that promise to myself to never you know do whatever i can in my powers that another student doesn't feel that way again um the story that you're describing i think is so beautiful because i worked with um it was two i was like at my local rec center and i was going to the gym and there was a mom there and she was asking um the person at the front desk if they have tutors for math specifically for her two sons and i just remember overhearing it and thinking I'm going to help her. Like, I'm not a tutor, but, you know, I've, I, I've been there, I've been in those shoes, and I'm, I'm going to help her. And so I just went up to her, and I was like, I will, like, work with your sons for free. Like, you don't have to charge me. It's okay. And I remember working with them, and she came up to me after maybe some weeks in and was like, that was the first time my son has walked out of a classroom because we would go in, like, little public classroom and felt, like, confident and felt like he could do it. And it made me tear up so bad because I was like, that is the feeling that I want to create that I never, you know, received in um, the later stages of my life in school. But it was also another big eye opener is because I realized that so much of what I deemed a success was always feedback that was given back to me, right? It was these systems that we had created in the first time that I didn't get an A or the first time that I, you know, got like a C or lower. It was like my brain literally spiraled because I didn't know how to accept this about myself because I hadn't created internal systems to feel like I was intelligent or worthy on my own. And um, so I love that you share that story because I just wish, you know, parents out there Um, because that's where it starts. I think it starts at home and then it carries into school. And then it's a lot of really the systemic, you know, curriculums that we've created and and the staff and the county and the teachers in the school systems that are going to carry this forward. Um, but I, I, I really think that's a huge thing about it. 
it's starting from within. Um, I'm curious just out of, you know, the other ideas that you have, what are like some other ways that schools can even just start fostering that, whether that's extracurriculars in the classroom, whatever. Yeah, and, and I just wanted to say too, off of what, what you mentioned is that I think that that is, is different sort of generationally in what we're seeing in terms of parenting. There's so much coming out now in terms of the research around parenting and changing mm-hmm. parenting strategies, but it hasn't necessarily been fully adapted to the educational system. Um, and I think we're still seeing the educational system stuck in this very behavioral um, modification, more sort of punitive rewards and consequences based approach. You know, even if we talk about different types of therapy modalities like ABA versus floor time, which I think is a different conversation, but um, there's still, and and don't get me wrong, I, I do think there's a benefit to behavioral approaches if they're done in a very co-regulated and relational way. Um, but But again, I think there's been so much emphasis on parenting shifts and now we need to also shift that to, to the educational system. Um, and so luckily there are some more researchers coming out now about that. So for example, Dr. Lori de Chantal, um, she's written wonderful books, um, one called Educational Neuroscience. And so they're taking this, this brain-based relational um, approach and really applying it to the educational system, which I think is wonderful. Um, and so another way to think about so some of the other topics or ideas that that we have um in our book but so there's something we talk about the teacher student dyad um so a lot of the infant and early childhood um, research talks about the parent child dyad and again how you have the dyad together and how it works together relationally and so we apply that to the teacher and the student um and again within a, a really busy classroom setting we know how hard it is to be able to sort of focus one on one student for too much of the time. But again, just being able to have, even if it's 30 seconds, 10 seconds to have that sort of relational foundation, and that's really important. Um, another thing we talk about, so one of the researchers, Ed Tronick and uh, Cohen, they talk about um, the amount of time needed for parents to create a secure attachment with their children oh, wow. it's really only they say 30 percent of the time <laughs> that you need to be um like on on cue reading their cues connected wow 30%. that's all you need to, in order to be able to create a secure attachment the other 70 percent of the time there could be misses there wow. could be rupture so they talk about ruptures and repair and so if we apply that to the classroom setting we know that um there's going to be good times there's going to be hard times the 70 percent of the time at least for parenting they're saying that that it you're not going to be like on it (laughs) as a parent um yeah but what we can do is that the magic is in the repair Wow. So as, as you are able to repair whatever the rupture was, mm. that creates that safety, that connection, that bonding, that growing, that criticism mm-hmm. uh, moving forward. And so we talk a lot about how to repair with students.
Yeah, give me an example of what repair would be. Does this look like, um, you know, communicating, taking accountability, an apology? Can this be nonverbal? Um, I'm I'm curious about maybe a verbal example and a nonverbal of repair. Yeah, so um, I thought of another sort of vignette um, of a student, um, sort of a compilation of, of different students um, into one. So I'll explain that. Um, so a 12-year-old uh, girl um, that she was, I worked with a few years ago, who um, was really delightful and she knew so much about um, natural disasters. <laughs> and so, for example, she, she could give facts and details about how many tornadoes there are a year, you know, the Richter scale, earthquake. She knew everything, and it was very, very impressive. Um, she also had some sort of self-regulating stimming behaviors, um, like tiptoe walking and hand flapping. And so um, what happened was one time a teacher um, told her to stop um, the, the stimming behaviors that, that she was seeing. And, um, and when I went in to observe her at school, the teacher was like, you know, we're not going to talk to her until she stops stimming. And we're just going to ignore it. We're not going to engage with her until she stops that stimming behavior. Um, and of course, that made her upset because, you know, she knew what was going on. And, and the stimming behavior was regulating to her nervous system and helping her calm and engage. Um, and so that caused the student to feel like her teacher didn't like her. And, um, she started not wanting to go to school and feeling like the teacher didn't like her and just feeling really negatively about herself. And so in working with the teacher to help reframe what stimming behaviors are and what their purpose are is and why, you know, they're happening and then allowing the teacher to have a repair. So the rupture was that she was ignoring a behavior she thought she should ignore um, because in some therapeutic modalities, they do say to ignore stimming behaviors, which I don't agree with. <laughs> um, and so she was able to talk to the student and say, you know, I'm, I understand now and I'm really sorry and I'm learning too. Um, mm. And we're together and I'm going to make mistakes and I want us to be able to have the, the type of relationship where we can talk to each other about this. So if I make a mistake, you can tell me and we can adjust and move forward. So being able to take accountability for that um, and and then show it through your behaviors moving forward that those changes are actually mm -hmm. taking. Um, and then sometimes it's it can be both ways too. You know, sometimes um, there's a student, both the student and the teacher need to repair together. So. Yeah. Um, if there's a student, for example, who um, is engaging in unsafe behaviors or screaming or threw a pencil at the teacher or something like that, um, and because of something that was dysregulating their nervous system, sending them into this fight response, um, their behaviors ruptured their relationship. Mm. And so in that situation, 
it's both ways. So the teacher can come to a point where they can repair and then the student can also, you know, whether it's through writing a letter um, or drawing a picture or, um, you know, just in some ways say, like, I'm sorry, let's change moving forward. And then when everyone's in a regulated state, they can problem solve. Like, how can we make this better so that it doesn't keep happening? Yeah, that the 30 and 70s is really intriguing to me because I wonder with that study, do you by any chance know if it was like a longitudinal, like over time? Because I wonder how much of it is, like you said, these behaviors have to be sustained once we've done the repair right so then with the 30 70 is that like uh are those like first time occurrences and then you know in terms of sustaining it i'm sure that the repair does have to portray itself recurringly in order for that trust to be established as well exactly yeah no i would have to look it up to see the exact details of of the study but Mm -hmm. it is that you have to um over time right and make sure that the behavior actually does change and I think knowing that the responsibility falls on the adult right so even if you have a 12 year old you know a teenager an adolescent who's engaging in behaviors that you feel as an adult are inappropriate and they shouldn't be doing that if you can switch your lens to be like okay what's triggering their nervous system right now and how can i address that instead of going to this sort of they're doing this on purpose they're manipulating they shouldn't do this you know move away from the shoulds and shouldn'ts and more towards the nervous system and check in with yourself and your nervous system because i think when we get into a fight or flight response then we're more likely to go into a negative response style to our students and so if we can check in with ourselves and make sure we're in a regulated state then that will help us look at the child's state of regulation and then move on from there yeah i think it's the whole curiosity versus judgment thing right and if we're not employing that in ourselves then you know we're not trained to employ that on other people so i i do think a lot of it is generational i mean now with instagram it's like you're seeing you scroll through your feed every other post is one of those therapy self-help posts at least that's the type of content I suggest but same with a lot of my friends um and so many of my friends who've either you know they've never gone to therapy or they never studied psych in school or just aware of all of these techniques and these terms and um all the vernacular so I I think that a lot of it is now even happening outside of um the school system as well with just everyone's accessibility to the internet. I wonder how much of now these, you know, skills that, you know, Wonder Tree and, and the work that you guys are doing to bring into schools, I wonder how much of it now is going to be almost a shift with the upcoming generation of students just picking up on these techniques from their phones. I'm, um, you know, I'm friends with, she's a neighbor of mine, um, very young, she's in fourth grade, and I was absolutely taken aback by this girl's knowledge of just personal development psychology terminology and her usage of it and how correctly she was able to identify patterns that she was going through things that she wanted to heal um it just absolutely blew my mind because i was like the awareness that she has is something that i only started to unlock you know maybe in my earlier 20s i'm 25 now so maybe 
1920 right on that brink but to see 11 year olds do it and and the shows that she's watching and her ability to analyze the characters trauma and their arcs is is beyond me so i i do wonder how much of it now is coming to like a almost a self-taught type of modality because it's a safe space to do it on your phone more than it is with a counselor or in a classroom or you know even if your parents force you to go to therapy at a young age how many students are you know afraid of that how many you know seven eight year olds are like no i don't want to do that i don't want to talk to it right and um it's it's crazy because this girl went out of her way to ask her dad to take her to therapy and i think a lot of it was from you know just her awareness of all of these modalities through social media and how we've made it really so acceptable and in fact encouraged to go seek out a therapist i think seeing that on your phone and seeing your friends do that is a lot more of a push than having your parents kind of take your hand and drag you down the hallway and go go talk to your counselor so (laughs) it's it's interesting i think how fast times are changing now and um i mean in terms of keeping up with it do you have any kind of thoughts on what that would look like for the next 10, 15 years and the generations coming up? Yeah, no, I love that. I think it's so important. I think, yeah, even just since from when I was a kid, it was so taboo, you know, and, and I think in a lot of ways, it still is. Like, I, I do see kids still saying like, oh, therapy's bad. Mm. That means wrong with me, you know, and it's still that very medical deficits based approach. Yeah. Luckily, see it swing in a different direction um but i do think you know like you were saying on tv shows and like disney channel shows and like even i was watching like the high school musical you know series the other night and um they model how the kids go to therapy and how it's just normalized and oh, i and love that awesome things to do you know an awesome thing to do and so that the more that that is represented in a positive way um the less stigma that we'll see and so i hope that that continues to be the case but yeah i mean i grew up i was always very anxious highly anxious in school um afraid to speak up afraid to speak my mind my thoughts my opinions and my ideas and so now you know I don't want that for my kids I don't want that for the kids that I work with I want them to be able to think critically and problem solve and speak up if they see something wrong or see an injustice or something that doesn't feel right you know not just blindly follow authority and so I think that that is a shift that we're starting to see and that hopefully we'll continue to see my goal or my hope one of my hopes is that we'll start to see that shift in the IEP process um, within school districts Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. that's still very I think there's a lot of really wonderful well-meaning administrators and special education staff and teachers that are really pushing hard to make that change but the way that IEPs are are written is still very behavioral um, and just focusing on the surface behavioral you know there's nothing about regulation nervous Mm. system so that's been something that I've been really pushing for Um, and so hopefully we'll continue to see a change there as well yeah I I also think it's it's you know I know every school has their designated counselor how much of now in in the job descriptions when they're seeking out a counselor should that be an expectation as well of you know it's it's not even about the certifications or where they've been to school but coming in with the techniques and the awareness 
to work with students to deploy those modalities as well, I think is, um, is a lot because really the resources that these schools have at the end of the day, I think it starts with the staff, it starts with um, a lot of what's acceptable and not acceptable by the county, right? It's, it's almost like a top-down thing. And so if it can't surpass that level, then what trickles down and what funnels down to eventually the student and what they're walking away with is really almost like a very political, systemized type of, um, you know, whether you want to call it an approach or a curriculum, whatever. But I think there's a lot of changes that need to be made that start from, it's almost, it's not even ground up. I see it being top down. Um, So getting, you know, almost like educational authorities to speak to this county and educate them putting resources and money into like whether that's workshops or meetings where we're talking to school officials and um you know i think mental health is thrown around very easily nowadays school counties are always trying to push mental health mental health mental health but what does it really mean it's it's more than you know having that designated counselor it's really working like you said beyond the surface of what the behaviors mean um so i can only cross my fingers and hope that those are shifts that are being made (laughs) um but i i appreciate you being here and sharing all the insights and your you know aspirations for what you hope to see in the next five to ten years as well um dr taylor where can people find you on social media your website i'll give you a moment to throw those links in right now yeah so we have our instagram page at uh, the why behind behaviors um and then you can also find me on my website wondertree-dp.com um and i've got offices in pasadena california and washington state um and yeah we're here i think it's you know one small step at a time i think it's hard when there is this, you know, system that we're sort of pushing up against and, um, you know, just just reach out if you have questions or need help and um, just, yeah, one small thing a day that you can do will, will really make a difference over time. That's beautiful. And I also just want to remind people too, is like, as you said, with one small thing is start with giving yourself that one small thing, right? Sometimes it can be really daunting to be like, oh my gosh, okay, what's, what's that one thing I need to do? Just... It's almost like just just pause and explore the thoughts coming up in your own mind, right? And and build that muscle, and then over time, and this this will take time, months or years. You're gonna start to, um, you know, carry that compassion towards other people as well, and their behaviors and what's coming up for them. So. Um, I love that one small step at a time. I want to echo what Dr. Taylor said. And just thank you so much for being here today in Conversations with NISTA. It was a pleasure. This was such a special topic to me. And um, I don't don't take it lightly or what you do lightly. So just want to commend you for all of the work that you've done. And please just don't stop. (laughs) The students need it. And the world needs it. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your stories with me. I really appreciate it. Of course. And to everyone listening in, thank you guys for tuning in to another episode today at Conversations with Mista, and we will see you next time.